we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Uh, our gracious Father, uh, it's kind of you, kind without words and even measure to think that you have given to us this book that's before us, this book where we can read and come to know, to know you, to know who you are and to be blessed by knowing you. You say this book uh, is alive and it penetrates into our very souls. We know there's nothing else that can do that. We know that this book is breathed out by you. By your spirit to carry it along those who would write in such a way that they would write exactly what you desired to have written, no more, no less. And so we can depend upon it, trust that as we hear it read, as we read it, we're listening to you. So please help us now as we hear your word and as we think upon it, guide every thought that we would have. And work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight, I pray. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I turn to Judges in chapter 3. Judges in chapter 3, please. I want to read um, the first six verses. Genesis, I mean, uh, Judges in chapter 3, please. This is the word of the Lord. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and all the Sidonians and all the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, it may surprise you to hear me say that when I read this passage, um, for me at least, it's one of the most helpful passages in explaining the Christian life. It's one of the most helpful passages explaining the Christian life. Now, it, it is so because it... it, it, it Notes two very significant things that we face, two things that are related together, tests and warfare. Tests and warfare. Now, in ancient Israel, these two things went together and were quite visible. In fact, one of the reasons I like reading the Old Testament so much is that it's very much a visual perspective on what we experience spiritually. It was visible to them because these nations were tangible. They were right there in their face. And so the test of having these nations right there in their face, uh, again, visible, tangible for them. And the warfare that uh, they engaged in was military 
warfare. But underneath it all was a spiritual foundation. Now for us, uh, it's not quite that visible. Oh, there are difficulties and tests in our lives, we know. Uh, but the battle that we fight is a spiritual one. We don't fight against people. We don't fight against nations. The church is never uh, called to be a military entity in that sense to take up arms. Um, but the tests are nonetheless real. And the battle is nonetheless real. Now you call this, recall the situation and, and I, I hope that, that you're able to do this with me uh, as you think through how we get to this passage in Judges. But that your mind biblically goes to creation. We're created in the image of God. Sin enters in Genesis chapter 3. So creation uh, to fall. And then you remember there was a flood with Noah as God judged but saved the family of Noah. And then you remember that God comes upon this man named Abraham who becomes Abraham. And he makes promises to Abraham. And the promises he makes to Abraham... Um, are that he'll have many descendants, uh, he'll have a land, and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him, through his seed. And then you remember that these very descendants of Abraham were in Egypt, enslaved for 400 years. Moses comes and he delivers them. It takes a generation, because of all the ins and outs that took place, it takes a generation for them to get to this land. Moses died. Joshua comes to lead them into the land. And Joshua does that, conquers the land in, in kind of its entirety in, in a way so that he can divide up the land among the tribes of Israel. And then they're called to go into their particular territories where there's still some nations residing and they're to drive them out so that they can take over the land. Now, last week, just parenthetically, we mentioned that this driving them out of the land uh, was just by God to do because this was a really depraved people. And we talked about the depravity and their worship that existed there in their lives. Also, it, 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 it rather pictures a final judgment of God for his people. We'll see it as we enter the new heavens and earth. This is as he, they enter this land of promise. And we needn't worry because this was a particular call in a particular nation, a particular point in history that was a theocracy where God was their king. And so they did the bidding of God. We have no such nation today. So we don't see these, shouldn't see these kinds of wars we do, but we shouldn't. Uh, and in no way is the church ever called to do such a thing, as I mentioned a minute ago. So, so we get this sense. And so here they are uh, in, in the land and uh, uh, and. There, uh, then, to get to drive these uh, people out. And they say, well, why were these nations left? I mean, surely God, by Joshua, could have wiped them all out and the people just gone in and, and settled. And, and some have speculated some military reasons for that. First of all, it's a big area, and so it would have been inefficient to do it that way, perhaps more efficient to do it this way. And secondly, it gave each individual tribe some ownership in their territory. They, they were the ones who were to drive the people out of their territory. But really, that's not the reasons at all that God gives for why he left the nations uh, in the land. He did it for two reasons. One, to test them. And two, to teach them war. Notice, uh, the end of chapter 2, I didn't read this, but the end of chapter 2, 
verse 21. He says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, as he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And so he left them there to test them, to see if they would walk faithfully before the Lord to do his bidding. And we we see that that had uh, two different uh, parts to it. The one is, would they obey in such a way to be faithful to God and not enter into the idolatry that those nations uh, practiced, that they would continue to worship God? And secondly, that they would be faithful to drive them out. The purpose of driving them out was so that they could have the land, yes, but so that these nations wouldn't be a snare to them, so that they would entice them to worship their gods. So we see again in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. Uh, that is, in all in Israel who had not experienced the wars in Canaan. And then in verse 4, we read, They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So they were left there uh, to test them in this way. And then in verse 2 of chapter 3, It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach those uh, to those who had not to teach war to those who had not known it before. Now these two things are related: testing and warfare. Because you see, through the testing, they were to become known. That is, the Israelites were to become known. But through warfare. God was to become known to them, who he was, who he is. These tests uh, to enable Israel to be known. Tests, I know when you hear the word test, when I hear the word test, I I still get nervous, right? Uh, I think of school, first of all. Or you might think of going to the doctors. And uh, we have a tendency to think of tests always as being negative. But we'll see in a minute, and according to God, they're not negative primarily. They're primarily positive. They're to prove that we are as opposed to that uh, we aren't. But for Israel, these tests were to test them to see what was in their hearts. Really, tests by God here was even not a new MO, wasn't a new way of him operating. You might remember Abraham's life. In Genesis in chapter 2, verse 1, we read this about Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. And I don't know about you, but when I read that at first, it just causes chills to go up my spine. Like, God, what are, you, what are you doing? On the one hand, we say, God, you promised Abraham descendants. This is it, Isaac. And now you're telling him to sacrifice him. So what's up with that? And secondly, you're telling him to sacrifice him. It's not like you, God. Parenthetically, if you're nervous, Isaac was the safest person on the planet that day. Because if Abraham disobeyed, he would live. 
And as we come to realize, when Abraham obeyed, Isaac still lived. Because it wasn't God's intention for Isaac to die. The intention was to test Abraham in the severest kind of way. To prove his faith. And that's exactly what happened. You might remember, Abraham got his son and got all the preparations for the sacrifice, the wood and the fire. And they took three days to get there. Now, all of this is rich <laughs> with allusions to Jesus. But, but, but he takes his son, his only son, on a three-day trek into to Mount Moriah, where for these three days, in Abraham's mind, his son's as good as dead. Isaac, though, is not an idiot, so he's asked his dad, so where's the sacrifice, dad? And Abraham... How much insight he had, we don't know. Abraham said God will provide the sacrifice. So you remember, Abraham readies his son to be sacrificed. He raises his hand with the knife and God stays his hand and said, Abraham, don't do that. This was a test. When you've passed, your faith is proven. And as we know, God provided a sacrifice. There was a ram caught in the bushes and Abraham went and got it. And so he named that place God will provide. And we know God will provide the sacrifice for us. His only son. But God tested Abraham uh, in that. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1. We read this. This is Moses uh, to the people as Come upon the land, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord, your God, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And and you can see, if you can think about the exodus as they leave, they were tested at various fronts. First of all, would they obey and simply slay the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and think that was going to save them? Would they do that? Would they trust him? And then as they they leave, and then, of course, God takes them to places where where they lack. They lack food. They lack water. They come to a place at Mount, uh, or uh, this lake, this... Of Mara, it's called bitterness. You might remember that from Ruth. That was the name she gave herself. It means it was bitter. The water was bitter. And they, they began to grumble against the Lord. And they said, yeah, we should go back. And so remember, Moses took a, a log and he threw it in there and sweetened it. And then God led them to springs where they could have water. Testing them. And then they got hungry and, 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 and they grumbled again. But God gave them manna to eat. And that's what he goes on to say here, verse Three And he humbled you and let you hunger and and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So God was testing them and, and, and revealing themselves to themselves. And also in the midst of this, revealing himself to them. In the midst of this test to say, look, here's who I am. I'm the one who blesses you. The one who... Who feeds you. 
And they would even be tested with a manna because he said, take just enough for a day. Will you trust me? And the day before the Sabbath, take for two days so you don't have to gather on the Sabbath. Will you trust me? All the while, you see all these tests come before them. Will you? And Jesus was tested. You remember, after his baptism, the scripture says that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Wow. It was the work of the Spirit to take him to this place so he could be tested and proven to be the Son of God. You might remember that Satan, through the religious leaders and others, would test Jesus all the time with questions. They were testing him, trying to trap him, trying to, trying to prove he really wasn't the Messiah, prove he really wasn't the Son of God. He passed every test, even at Gethsemane. He passed that test, a great trial, facing what he knew to be true, the wrath of God coming upon him, and still he passed, if you will, that test, not my will, but, but, yours, but yours be done. Those, those tests. Now, bear in mind, please, because you know you're being tested all the time. You might have a list right now of tests. Things that are testing your faith. And you're struggling with them in various ways or not. But I don't have to list them for you. I could give you my list, but I don't even have enough time. God's intention for these tests isn't to prove us unfaithful, but to prove us faithful. I mean, even a professor, at least on a good day, giving a test, hopes to see that his or her students have actually learned something. It's gratifying, at least it was to me when I did this, to give a test And see people do well. Because I thought, they got it. They learned it. They actually, this is a a good day when they learned it, you see. And so this desire, and and, and I know when I go to the doctors, I I don't go often because I dread it. Because I'm afraid they're going to find something wrong. But the hope is that we're going to take all these tests and nothing's wrong. And then you can leave and you go, oh, good, nothing's wrong. That's great. And have that assurance that nothing's wrong. Um, If you're a marketer and you have a test market, your hope is, I'm going to find that these people want to buy this product. Or if you're in politics, want to vote for this candidate. That's what you hope to find. Ultimately, that's your intention. Now, you find the negative, that's valuable too. When we find the negative in our own lives before God, then his gift to us, his goodness to us, is to lead us to repentance. So his intention is always good. Turn to James and chapter 1. Looking at my watch, because I don't know if I have two sermons or one today, we'll see. Sometimes it's hard to know. James chapter 1, please. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Now, that word trial is a word that also means test. It also means tempt. It also means trial. (laughs) Because trials do both They can test us and tempt us. Notice the difference here. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, same word, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who who love him. You, you even get the sense here what God's hoping in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this test, is we'll get the crown of life. Not that we merit it or earn it, but he's saying, look, it's true about you. You, you really do believe. And, and thus, here is eternal life. Verse 13. That no one say when he's tempted. Now, see the little twist here. Same word group. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. And he himself, uh, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Because you see, a temptation, the intent of, an in, of a temptation is to get us to sin. That's the intent of a temptation. When someone says, I was tempted by that, you know what they mean. It was enticing. And the enticement was to sin, to do something wrong. And so trials, testing, can be neutral in that sense. God's intent isn't that we sin, but rather the opposite, that we don't sin. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That's not God's intention. That happens because of sin. But notice verse 16. It follows on the heels of this. Sometimes we separate these two paragraphs. I'd suggest that it's unhelpful to do that. Verse 16 says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. That is, don't be deceived by all this trial and tempting thing. Verse 17. Every good and every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by his word that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creation. You see, God's intention for the difficulties that we go through in life, the trials that we go through in life, the enemies that are out there in front of us, his intention is that we, we, we respond in a way that shows that we are his, his first fruits. In the midst of that, we should see, it should reveal in us and through us, it should reveal that, yes, we really do belong to God. Now, you know your own pattern. And sometimes when difficulties come, man, we're just really good with it. You know, we just kind of walk with God and we prove it and we go, yeah, sometimes not so much. But we end up maybe in tears, maybe shaking, maybe with our heart pounding, maybe with a measure of anxiety, but still crying out to God because we know he's our only hope. And so there we find ourselves, we prove really ourselves in him. Uh, I read, well, we can go up while we're in James, chapter 1, verse 2, notice this. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing, same word, of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's God's intent. God's intent through every difficulty, is at the end of the day, whenever that day comes, or the end of the day, that you're satisfied. And you're satisfied because you know that you belong to him. And you rest assured that all is well with my soul. And there's nothing like that. Nothing that beats that. Nothing at all. I read from First Peter earlier this morning with the intention that it would be on your mind. 
So let me just take a look at that passage again. Uh, beginning of that passage, beginning in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he tells us that we're a blessed people because of what Christ has done. And we have this great hope because we've been born again. And so we know that we belong to him. And then verse uh, 6, In this you rejoice, we rejoice in the salvation, though now for a little while, if necessary, and you get the sense that it's necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, tests, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. saying he's purifying you through this. Now, I always ask, why do I need this? And I never get an answer (laughs) other than, you need this. I'm not God. I don't set the agenda. I'm not God. I'm not the sovereign one who sets the agenda. And so uh, that question just sort of falls out there. The real answer is, Bill, you need this. And the end result, though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him, which is an amazing thing. Believe in that which you can't see with our eyes. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's all leading to that, to the salvation of our, our souls. And see, that's what happened with Abraham. Turn back to James now in chapter 2. James in chapter 2. Verse 18. James, you might remember if you're familiar with this little letter, is contrasting or comparing faith and works together, how they're related together. Because we know that we're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, it's not our works, lest anyone of us should boast. But there is a relationship between faith and what we do, faith and obedience. And James is trying to lay that out for us. We must always get them in the right order, faith first, then obedience. His point will be that obedience proves the faith, just like in Abraham's life, verse 18. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. See, that's it. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, says that Abraham believed God and was counted to him, credited to him, put to his account as righteousness. He was declared by God righteous. That's what we call being justified, that we call being saved, if you will. Now, that came by faith. He didn't do anything to merit that. He hadn't done anything. God had come to him and blessed him in this way. Genesis 22, years later, he's with his son Isaac, and now that faith is tested. Is it real? And so 
His faith was tested by his obedience and proven to be true faith. Now you say, sometimes my faith is tested and I disobey. My question is, then what? Then do you confess? You say, not right away. I understand that. So does King David. It took him a while. But he came to confess and to repent. And to be restored, forgiven. But that sense, you see, these tests that come, they show what's in our heart. Do we trust? Do we not trust? Now sometimes you say, when this refining fire comes, I feel like my faith is shot. I feel like I have not any faith at all. Well, the truth is, when the tests come and the refining fire comes, what happens is it burns off everything you trusted that wasn't God. So before you thought your faith was huge, but it all wasn't faith in God. And so the refining fire comes and it kind of <laughs> reduces all that other stuff that wasn't really faith in God. And you look, you only have the handful, you think, but that's real. And don't think it's small, because it's real. And that's what will grow, as the other is burned off. We face all kinds of tests, you see. The Israelites face these tests, these nations that were right in front of them. But we face tests all the time. Whether they're physical illness or difficulties relationally, or whether they're financial whether they test our security. All of these things are coming at, in a very real sense, the idols in our lives. What do we really trust? And that's a blessing. God's intention is to cause us to trust him, not the idols in our lives. And if you're a believer in Jesus, that's exactly what will happen. Now, the route may be a difficult one, and the route may make you wonder at times. But it has the end result always in God, that our faith is proven genuine, and we know that we have eternal life. Walk with him. Trust him. Now, the second part of this is the warfare, the battle <clears throat> that takes place. Now, in ancient Israel, it was a physical one, you can see, but it really had spiritual dimensions. If you study the military history of ancient Israel, you realize that their success was never determined by their military readiness or their military intelligence or their military might. It was always determined by their relationship with God. It was always spiritual. In fact, if we read through Judges, we're going to find that God uses some of the most unusual characters and some of the most unusual weapons and gets the most unusual results. I mean, one guy takes a cattle prod and kills 6,000. Another guy takes the jawbone of a donkey and slays an army. So, wow, how can he do that? Joshua told the people that when they entered the land, one of them would slay a thousand. I remember reading that as a little kid and I had all kinds of imaginations. I can only imagine the imaginations of kids today having video games, what that would look like, one slaying a thousand. But that's what he said would take place. One would slay a thousand. 
You might remember there was a, a, a battle. Um, Joshua was bringing the armies of Israel against the Amalekites. Moses was still alive at that time. So Moses went up on the mountain and he began to pray. And as he prayed, Joshua would be successful in battle. But then he would become weary and stop praying. And then Joshua began to lose the battle. And you remember there were two priests, Aaron and Hur, who stood one on the other, one on each side of Moses and held up his arm so he could continue to pray uh, so that the battle was won. And so the, the question is, who won the battle, Joshua or God? And the answer, of course, was yes. Spiritually, and yet God was working through his servant, uh, Joshua. You remember Joshua himself, and then as they entered the land, uh, defeated Jericho with a shout. But, but it was spiritual because you see, they went then next to face uh, a little city called Ai. I think that's how you say it. It's spelled the same way it's pronounced. Uh, but and, and so they, they looked at the situation from a military perspective and basically essentially said, this will be the, a piece of cake. We outnumber them 150 to one. And so Joshua sends in his 150 to one and they lose. And the reason they lose is because there was one guy during the battle of Jericho who disobeyed the Lord and took some of that which was holy to the Lord to himself. And even though Joshua's army was greater than the army of Ai by any kind of calculation you could possibly make, they lost the first time around until there was repentance. It's spiritual. Even there, it's spiritual. And of course, David, of course, when he went up against Goliath, had no business at all defeating this big giant unusual weapon, a stone from a sling from a little kid to defeat a big giant. We see that there. And then my dear friend, Jehoshaphat, upon whom I rely his life often to think about how to live mine. King of Judah found himself um, in a valley and he looked at every corner around him and saw an enemy each one of those enemies by themselves could defeat his people in the valley. He knew he had no hope. He was afraid. He turned and said, the Lord, the prophet came to him and said, don't worry, the battle's not yours, it's God's. One of my favorite expressions then is that they rose the next morning, which means they slept the night before, trusting that the battle wasn't theirs, but in fact it was God's. And so he went up with no weapons. He said, I want you to sing. And they sang, and the armies defeated themselves. It's a battle, but it's always a spiritual one. We get that, and we know that. For instance, Ephesians chapter 6. I'm sure you know where I'm headed. Ephesians in chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, that's the battle. You might think your husband is the battle, or your wife is the battle, or your kids are the battle, or your parents are the battle, or your friends are the battle, or the economy is the battle, or, or uh, wherever is the battle. That doesn't mean there isn't difficulty there and real conflict in the midst of all that, but, 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 but underlying all of that, it's a spiritual battle, and so how do we fight? Well, they were supposed to drive out the people. We're not supposed to drive out the people. <laughs> we're supposed to drive out the devil. We're supposed to drive out the sin, right, in us. And not be sucked in to the temptation by the one who wants us to turn from God, but to be proven genuine by trusting God, the one whose intent is that we'll be faithful. And so the weapons, you see, that we use aren't physical weapons, they're spiritual weapons. Keep your finger in Ephesians, but turn to Second Corinthians and uh, chapter 10. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. That means our own strength and our own sinfulness. But have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when, you're, when your obedience is complete, you see. And so it's spiritual. They're spiritual weapons. And so Paul lays out them. He says, that, and, 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 and these things pile on each other. Sometimes we try to distinguish one to the other, but, but they're really all the same. They're really, all of these weapons of our warfare uh, go back to the word and prayer, the word of God and prayer, the power of the Spirit working through his word as we pray and as we live. And so he says in the Ephesians passage, uh, verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, you know the truth of God, having put on the blessed breastplate of righteousness that you're secure in the justification and the righteousness that is ours in Christ. And you have the gospel on your feet and that, that gives you freedom because you're free because you know that, that God is with you and that you belong to him because of Christ. And that you have the shield of faith, you, you trust. And so whatever comes against you, say, oh no, I'm going to trust Jesus in this. I'm going to trust him in this. And the evil one can't get you. And the helmet of salvation, I know that I belong to God through Jesus. I'm really saved. And you have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that you take up praying all the time that God will make it effective in the context of your, of your life. And so that, you see, becomes our weapons. of spiritual enemies, spiritual weapons. And that's life, you see. So as we, as we go through judges in any part of the Old Testament, to me, especially these battles, what we see is, is our spiritual lives played out. Our spiritual lives played out in living color, if you will, in their, in their lives. And God helps us. They're real enemies of our souls. That's why Paul says it's, he's fought the fight of faith. It's a fight sometimes. To fight sometimes to maintain faith. And these tests come. And God says, trust me. 
And they go, well, I'd, I'd rather trust my money. I'd rather trust my position. I'd rather trust my place. I'd rather trust the stuff I have. And all that's good stuff. And God may use all of that to help deliver you. But he says, don't make that the ultimate. Don't think that's saving you. If money helps you in this situation, no, I gave it to you. I helped you get it. I was the, the, the motivator. If, if your position and you have connections and networks that help you solve this, that's great. But, but don't count on them. Give thanks to me because they exist. And if you don't have any of that, even still, trust me. Trust me. And we know that we can because we see Jesus. who defeated sin and death by way of a cross. That's like way bigger than one slaying a thousand. That's like way more surprising. Who would ever thought that? And he says, so I know it may look good for you at the moment. It's a test. Fight by trusting me. Fight by relying on my word. Fight by praying. Fight by being in relationship with other Christians and worship and life. I'll deliver you. Let's pray. Father. Help us. I think of the man who came upon Jesus and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Yes. Help us. Help us to fight the fight of faith. Help us in every trial to not minimize the pain of the trial and the difficulty of the trial and all that's before us in the trial, but help us. Grant us grace to grab a hold of spiritual weapons that you give us and to trust and to trust in you. For those who grieve today, the Grubb family. For those who need healing today, who suffer physically like my dad and others. For those who Grieved over broken relationships and difficulties and misunderstandings. For those who look at their financial situation and wonder, how is this ever going to work out? Whatever the deal, whatever the situation, whatever the test, please enable each of us to trust you. In Jesus' name.